Genesis chapter 15. Let's read verses 1 to 6 and follow along as I read, please. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir to my house is Eliezer of of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my own household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. We're going to stop there, but we will look through the remainder of this chapter. And and I'm stopping before one of the more bizarre uh, scenes in the Bible. If you think about it, if you stop and think about it, there are some kind of strange accounts in Scripture. If you've grown up attending church and have you know, went to Sunday school since you were a newborn and you've heard, sat through a lot of those Bible lessons, I, I just try to think what it would be like to hear some of the stories for, of, in the Bible for the very first time. And maybe you haven't grown that, and so maybe this is the first time you'll hear this account. But in Genesis, you have Lot's wife being turned into a pillar of salt. You have Jacob wrestling with God. And in other places, you have Moses and the burning bush, or even just Isaiah's vision of the Lord in the temple there, Isaiah 6. And, and so these and many other famous scenes from, from Scripture, they stir the imagination and in and, 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 and some really strange ways. But this scene in Genesis 15, in which Abraham, who's Abram at the time, he has his face-to-face meeting with God. It has to be one of the more the, the stranger stories, at least to us as modern readers. Um, it, 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 we, we have no category for this. When, but when you get past its strangeness, it is incredibly powerful. And I would honestly say it's the, it, it, it is through the things that seem so strange to us that it speaks most powerfully to us. And so we'll see that together. And what we're going to see, it is foundational to the gospel itself. And so this has everything to do with us today. Before we get into it, I'm just going to give you a quick summary of the last two chapters that we didn't look at together. You notice in verse 1, he says, after these things. So, so what, what things is, is he writing after here? So in chapters 13 and 14... Abraham and his nephew Lot, they separate and go different ways. So Abraham uh, lets Lot choose kind of which part of the land he wants to settle in, and he picks, no surprise, the best part of the land for his cattle to graze in. And so he sees green pastures, and he's like, yep, those are the ones I want. But those green pastures are near the city of Sodom. And, uh, and, and so greener is not always better because... Uh, Sodom is a city that's known for, had a reputation for all kinds of evil. And yet Lot kind of lives near there and eventually becomes a citizen of Sodom. And so Lot gets swept up in a war between these, some of the kings and the surrounding areas. They start going after the king of Sodom and, and Lot gets kind of caught up in this. And he's taken captive along with all of his possessions. 
And so Abram, being the good uncle that he is, he gathers together a couple, few hundred troops and, and, and goes and rescues Lot. And, he, and he, he, he hunts down his captors. He brings Lot and all of his possessions back uh, and gets it all back. And so and he also brought back to the king of Sodom all of their possessions that had, had been lost and taken during the war. So the king of Sodom meets Abram uh, and, and offers him this deal. He says, basically, give me, give me the, or, or you can have the, um, all of the riches if you'll just give me the people. And, and you can take all of that, spoil all of our possessions for yourself if you'll just give the people. And Abram says, no, I'm not going to touch any of your riches. I don't want you to be able to come back later and say that you made me rich. Uh, and so I'm going to wait on God's promise to be fulfilled. I'm going to trust his and wait on his reward. And so verse 1 again, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision and saying, Fear not, Abram. Now, there are, there are four big incidents when, when God comes to Abram and in some way or, an, or another. And so these kind of four crises that, that we find in, in Genesis here. One of them we looked at last week, Genesis 12. And this is when God comes to him the first time and he says, Abram, leave your country, leave your people, leave your family, and go to this place that I'm going to show you. And he says, I'm, he goes on, I'm going to make you a great nation, I'm going to bless you, and your name's going to be great, and, and, and through you all of the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. It's magnificent promise. And so the writer of Hebrews sums his response up, and it just says, Abram left, and he, he went not knowing where he was going. And so that was, that was one. Today, we come to the second of these, Genesis 15. And so God expands on that promise that Abram's descendants were going to be this great nation. Now, if, he's, if God's saying your descendants are going to be this great nation, that means a couple of things. One, it means that God would have to give him a child. You can't have multiple descendants if you don't have, you know, at least start with one, one son. And so if Abram's going to be a great nation, he has to have a son. Secondly, God would have to give him a land. And so if he's going to be a nation, they have to have a place. They have to have real estate. And so here in Genesis 15, we find Abram saying to God, will I have a child? Will I have a land? <laughs> is, it, is that literally going to come to pass? And, and God says, yes, you will. And he says, come out and I will give you a land. And then he says, well, not exactly you, but your descendants after you. It's going to be about 400 years from now when you'll have the land. Then Genesis 17 is another incident when God comes to to when, when God, uh, there's this encounter again between Abraham and the Lord. Abraham, Abraham comes to God and says, Lord, you say you're going to give me a child. I'm 99 years old. My wife is 90. Uh, we've been waiting 25 years. And the Lord basically says to him, and? <laughs> What's your point? Uh, no, he just says, wait. Just wait. And then finally, a child is born, Isaac. And then Genesis 22, which is where we'll be next week. God, God says to Abram, after he has his child, he says, take your son, your only son whom you love, and offer him up as a sacrifice to me. Kill him. And so someone summarized Abram's life in, a, in I think, a helpful way. And it's this. God says, I'm going to send you out. Abram says, asks, where? God says, I'll tell you later. Just go. Then God says, I'll give you a land. Abram asks, Where? God says, I'll tell you later, just wander. Then God says, I'll give you a child. Abram asks, how? God says, I'll tell you later, just wait. 
Then after God gives him a child, God says, Abram, kill your child. Abraham asks, why? And God says, I'll tell you later. Just walk up the mountain. And so woven through all four of these accounts, there, there are these two things that it, maybe are, are more implicit and, and you can miss. And one is, is time. There's a lot of time that transpires. It's 10 years from the promise that God made to Abram first in Genesis 12 to what we're reading now in chapter 15. A full decade waiting, <coughs> waiting. And it's going to be 25 more years before God finally gives him the son that he promised He's, gonna, he's never going to own land except for a small plot of land in which he'll be buried in. And so it's going to be 400 years long after his death before the, the, the people take possession of the land. So time. The other, the other feature that's woven through here is failure. It's failure. Abraham is not a model of perfect faithfulness. He's just not. Two times he lies about and betrays his wife, says that she's his sister in order to save his own skin, and he puts her life in, in danger. Chapter 12 and chapter 20. He's, he's going to sleep with Hagar, his servant, because of, uh, he's going to distrust what, what God has spoken in chapter 16. So this, as I said this last week, but this is going to be the pattern throughout the remainder of Genesis. Man's repeated failures and God's continual faithfulness. His, he, he, will, he will rescue, he will bless he will keep his promises to his people. So man's weaknesses and God's strengths, man's failures and God's persistent, unrelenting grace. That's the rhythm of Genesis 15 or 12 through 50 here. God is faithful. God keeps his promise. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. That's the pattern we're going to see. And that's what we see in Abraham's life. And so just three simple points this morning. We're going to see the promise given. We're going to see the promise believed. And we're going to see the promise guaranteed. And so let's look at those together. So verse 1 again. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Now, most translators agree that that last phrase is probably better translated, more simply, I am your very great reward. So, I am your shield, your very great reward. It's both being referenced to the Lord. So, this is what God's saying. Here's two reasons you have not to fear. I will protect you. I will be your shield. And secondly, I will be your reward. Not just reward, but a very, your very great reward. What God is saying is, Abram, I am enough. I'm enough. Trust me. And, 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 and this, is, this, is, this is going to be the struggle for Abram. But this is what God says right at the beginning. He makes his promise. Trust me, Abram. I'm enough. I will provide. So with these incredible words of comfort and help and promise from the Lord, <coughs> Abram is kind of, kind of jarred into this, into this verbal lament. So verse 2 and 3. Abram said to God, uh, but, but Abram said, O Lord God, Adonai Yahweh, the, 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 the sovereign ruler, the Lord, covenant Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. So again, it's been ten long years since God first promised him a son. And so Abram says to God, thank you for being my shield, for, for giving me yourself as my very great reward. Probably not really exactly sure what that means, but what, what does it matter if I don't have a son, if I don't have an heir? 
And so it's, it, it was customary, you notice this reference to Eliezer, it was customary in that day that if a man died without a natural heir, all of his possessions would go to his, his chief servant, the chief servant of his household. In this case, it was Eliezer of Damascus. He's probably a, a very, very fine man, but he's not a son. Abram wanted a son. God promised him a son. And so, so God, is, God, is, God is tender, and, and he's full of compassion and mercy, abounding in love. And so in verses 4 to 5, God, God tells Abram that he has not forgotten his promise. He, is, he, he will certainly bring it to pass. And so God may seem slow in keeping his promises, but it's not because he's forgotten. He is patient. He is, he is far more patient than we are, isn't he? Um, and so in verses 4 to 5, God, God doesn't berate Abram for, for brushing aside this, this great promise of verse 1. Instead, God encourages him and says, basically, I haven't forgotten. I will keep all of my promises to you. So, promise given. Second, a promise believed. Verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man, Eliezer, shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. So, God wants to make very clear what his, that what his intentions are. And so, Abram knows that he means it because God takes him outside and there's this little object lesson, not a little object lesson, a very big object lesson that God gives him. In verse 5, he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them, and he's not. Uh, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. He gives him this reminder. We, we need a lot of reminders, don't we, brothers and sisters, when it comes to remembering the goodness and the promises of God. Um, God doesn't ever forget his promises, but we, we often do. Um, and so it's, it's good. It's a good practice for us just in the Christian life to, to remind ourselves continually of the things that he's promised and said. And I know many of you have ways of doing this and, and uh, you know, low-tech ways of, bullet, of, of posting notes on your bathroom mirror and, and high-tech ways of apps that, you know, send you these reminders and scriptures and put them in front of your uh, face. And, I mean, this is why we gather on the Lord's Day. This is why the Lord's called us to, to gather as a church, to remember. And we, through the, through the word being preached and the songs we sing and, and, the, and the Lord's table, we're constantly reminding one another of the promises of God and the certainty of them. And so as you read through the Old Testament, we see all of these reminders. Many times we see the, the saints setting up these altars or, or, or these stacking stones, doing these things to, to, to leave reminders for themselves and for future generations of the things that God has promised and the things that God did in that place. And so sometimes you're reading it through those narratives and, and the writer will say like uh, uh, that, that, that some of these altars, some of these things can, can, the, can still be seen to this day. In other words, when, whenever that portion of Scripture was being written, that, 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 uh, that was still set up. You could go to that place and, and see it with your own eyes. It was, that constructed reminder was still standing. Now, obviously, thousands of years later, uh, those altars are no longer standing for us, and sometimes through neglect, sometimes through God's people being taken captive and, and, and carried off and, and scattered, all of those altars were torn down and deteriorated, deteriorated away. But in verses 4 or 5, God's, God's setting up a reminder for Abram and for all future generations of a promise that God has made and, and a reminder that can never be taken away. It's, it's like what God did with Noah and the rainbow. I mean, so, so now God does it with Abram and these stars. He says, make, God makes this kind of altar of remembrance out of the stars. Now, I'm not an astronomer. I, 
I can find uh, the Big Dipper and Orion's Belt and sometimes the Little Dipper, and that's about it of my constellation uh, knowledge. And so, but when I'm out in West Texas or when I, you get out away from the city and you can look up at the night sky on a clear night and, and it's just this, this dark sky is just covered in this blanket of stars, bright stars. I, I, I think about this promise of God to Abram. Uh, that, that starry sky is like God's signature to Abram and to all of, all of those who go after him. It's, it's a reminder telling Abram, telling us God, God keeps his promises. And so he's, he's, this is promised that Abram's descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. He's going to say in chapter 22 that, Abram, your descendants are going to be as numerous as the grains of, of sand. Now, there are scientists estimate, I don't think they've counted, <laughs> but there are 2,000 billion billion grains of sand on the earth. I guess nobody knows uh, how to say the whatever word a billion billion is, but um, 2,000 billion billion grains of sand on the earth. And there are probably 25 times that many stars in the universe. And so, obviously, that, what, what God is doing is he's using a figure of speech and he's saying, this, this is, this, you're gonna, your descendants are going to be too numerous to count. You just can't fathom how I will bless and how I will work through you and through your offspring, Abram. And of course, according to Galatians 3.29, Abram's not only doesn't just have physical descendants, the people of Israel through, by, by blood, but, but spiritual descendants according to faith, all believers, including us. We're grafted into this promise. And so together, these descendants are this astronomical number, and God, God, God gives this celestial reminder of his promise. Hey, Abram, uh, it's going to happen. And so, and just like we talked about last week, what, what, what God, when God speaks in this way, God is, God is doing something. His word is effectual. He's, he's working through his speaking, and that's exactly what happens here. His word gives birth to faith in Abram. Faith isn't something we muster up inside of ourselves. Faith isn't something natural to us that we can, we can develop. Faith isn't just a learned skill. Faith is a gift from God. It's born out of God's spoken word of promise. There would be no faith if God didn't speak. And so Abram responds to God's promise in verse 6, and he believed the Lord. He believed the Lord. He didn't just believe in the Lord. He, he believed the Lord. He trusted God. He rested the full weight of his confidence on the Lord and, and on his promise and what he has said. And so even though the circumstances pointed to, to failed, a, a failed promise from God, he's childless. He has no land yet. Abram believed the Lord. He believed the Lord, and it says, and he counted it to him as righteousness. That's, that's great language. That's judicial language in the Old Testament and New Testament. It, it's saying it's, it's this verdict whereby God said to Abram, not guilty. He believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Genesis 15, 6 tells us that Abram was justified, counted righteous, uh, his account was credited with God's righteousness simply because he believed the Lord. Now, if Genesis 15 is one of the most important chapters in the Bible, along with Genesis 12 that we looked at last week, then this verse is, is one of the most important verses in the Bible. Genesis 15, 6. This becomes the text for Paul in the New Testament, making his case for justification by faith alone. 
Romans chapter 4, Galatians chapter 3. And in Galatians 3, we looked at Romans 4 briefly last week, but Galatians 3, Paul's writing to this church. It's being harassed and is being infiltrated by people who are, who are saying, no, faith in Christ alone isn't sufficient. You need, to, you, you need more. You need obedience to the law. And so they used Abraham as exhibit A of this, of this false teaching and, and saying, no, the works of the law are necessary to be acceptable before God. And in particular, circumcision was necessary. That's what's going on in, the, in Galatians as Paul's writing this letter. But Paul drops the A-bomb on them, the Abraham bomb. And, and on them and on their, their faulty reasoning, he says, No, you, you've conveniently ignored a, a significant fact. And it's that the scriptures say that Abraham was counted as righteous by faith many years before he was ever circumcised. Over 14 years before he was circumcised. And so Paul's point in going back here, he said, justification is not dependent upon obedience. It's, a, it's by faith, and faith is about believing and receiving, not earning and deserving. And so he goes on in, in, in Galatians 3 to say that Christ has redeemed us, not, not by the law, he has redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us. So Christ took the curse upon himself as our substitute, obeying the law perfectly in his life, suffering the penalty of, of, of failing to, to, to obey the law that we deserved, taking the wrath of God on our behalf through his death. He became a curse for us. And the way Christ's righteousness is credited to us is by faith. It's by faith trusting in Christ and what he's accomplished for us. And so, <clears throat> now did Abraham have all of that sorted out his, in his mind when the text says here in Genesis 15 that he believed the Lord and credited, it was counted to him as righteousness? Did he have Rome, Galatians 3 and Romans 4, that kind of technical language worked out? No, but he believed the promises of God. He knew about Adam and Eve. He knew the story. He knew the promised seed that would one day crush the serpent's head. He knew that God promised that all of the earth would be blessed through, through him, through his descendant. There would be the promised one, the Messiah, who would come maybe through him. Perhaps he's thinking maybe his son, if God, promised, if God provides this son through me, maybe he's the one. He's the one. John 8, verse 56, Jesus gives a key to understanding Abraham's faith and what it pointed to. Jesus says, your father Abram, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And so he, 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 even this is pointing us to Christ. But most simply, we say, Abram believed the Lord. He believed his word. And God credited him with righteousness. He was justified, we could say, by grace alone, through faith alone, ultimately, and because of Christ alone. So the promise was given. The promise was believed. And, and third, and this is what, a, what we're, we're, we get a little more bizarre to our, to our uh, reading of this, is this promise is guaranteed, but this is powerful. This is one of the greatest images in Scripture and, and just drips with the gospel. Verse 7. <coughs> Excuse me. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Now, notice the way that that's recorded. Just, if you were with us last week, remember what God spoke. He said, Abram, 
Go out, leave your country, leave your people, leave your family, and go to the land I will, I will send you. And then the text went on to say, and Abram went. But look at where the emphasis is in the text. The Lord brought Abram out of the land of Ur. It wasn't like Abram had this... It wasn't, the, the, the focus is not on the initiative of Abram, it's the, on the initiative of God. God brought him out. The accent is on God's sovereign grace, God's doing. So this is, the Lord speaks to him and he says, verse 8, But Abram said, O Lord God, how? How am I to know that I shall possess it? How can I know? I mean, this is the guy who's like us. <laughs> He's made of the same stuff as us. I know we, we put Abraham up on that pedestal. He's like us. And, and so how can I know? Well, God answers, but he does it in a, in, a, in a very unusual way. Now we get to the more bizarre part of the story that I alluded to earlier. And so the first thing God says to him, verse 9, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Okay, <laughs> what in the world is going on here? Um, and, then it, and then it's interesting what we read next, verse 10. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. They were kind of across from each other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. What is going on? Now, the reason, again, this is difficult for us to understand initially is because we, we don't live in that day and time. This is, this is so foreign to modern Bible readers in the West in our, in our day and time. So notice, Abram, he's not, he's not even given instructions about what to do other than to bring the animals that God tells him to bring. God just says, bring the animals, and then he brings them and immediately starts cutting them in half. God didn't tell him to do that. Why? He knows exactly what to do with them. This is a known, this is a known um, ceremony. This was, not, this was perfectly in line with their custom. He brings these animals, cuts them in pieces, and separates them, and the small birds he doesn't cut, and he, and he lays all these animals out. He was doing what everybody in that day and time would know to do. But we obviously don't. And so let me explain the significance of this. So how do we, how do we sign contracts? Let's just say, how do we, how do we set up, uh, make a real estate deal? Well, we call Wessels and Gerber. I don't see Jeremy over here today, so give him a hard time. He's probably doing security or something. But we call Wessels and Gerber. We set a closing date. You, you, you're gathered around that conference table with the, with the attorney. And what's happening at that table? You're making promises. That's what you're doing. You're promising to pay if you're the buyer. You're promising to turn over the keys if you're the seller. You're promising that you have insurance, you know, to the lender. You're, you're promising not to destroy the house and, you know, take all of the appliances that are supposed to stay with the house. You're, they are, they are all, they are promising those things. When you, you're promising that things are in working order, that you said were in working order. But what if you, what, what, what if you get to that table and the buyer gets to the point and says, how do I know you, O sovereign seller? <laughs> how do I know that you will give this house to me and do these things for me that you say you will? And the seller says, I won't just say I'll do these things. What? I'll sign. I'll 
sign my name. And the buyer says, I won't just say I have the money, I'll sign. I'll, I'll, I'll prove it. And so they take one of those Wessels and Gerber pins that are laid out on the table and they, and they write their names about a hundred times on that thick stack of paper. I don't know what any of that means, but uh, we just do it anyway. And Because what? In our culture... You, you, you sign, when you sign, there are consequences. If you break your word, there are consequences. That's why the attorney's present. And he's testi- testifying to this. So, honestly, if you haven't signed, there really aren't legal consequences. There might be a black eye uh, or some, some you know, vigilante justice, but there's, it's not none in the court. But there are, there are consequences, and they come when you sign But back then, Abraham didn't live in a written culture. He lived in an oral storytelling culture. And so the way they made contracts is different. It was probably more effective than ours. Um, Whenever they made a contract and someone said, you promised to give me a couple oxen in exchange for an acre of land or something like that, how do I know you'll do it? The way they did it was they put themselves in a position where the consequences for breaking their word were, were acted out. They acted out the consequences of unfaithfulness right before everybody. And there's an example of this in Jeremiah chapter 34. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 34 and, and verse 18. Just listen, Jeremiah 34, 18. Uh, it says, And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will take them like the calf that they cut in two and pass before, between its parts. The officials of Judah, the, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who pass between the parts of the calf. And I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their lives. Their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and beasts of the earth. So you see what he's saying. He's saying in those days when you, when you took an oath, you're not signing a paper. That's, that's kind of wimpy, you know. <laughs> you're, what, what does that mean? A pay, pen on paper, you know, that, who's, who, who cares? Here's what you do. You take an animal, cut it in two pieces, lay the parts out, make this aisle, and you walk down that aisle. And what you're saying is if, if, if I do not do everything that I'm promising right now, may, may what happened to these animals happen to me. May I be cut off. May I be, may I be destroyed. May, may my flesh be eaten by the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. That's pretty effective, don't you think? <laughs> that's, that's better than signing a paper. Uh, that's that's pretty vivid. Maybe Jeremy needs to get rid of his conference room and you know have like animal stalls or something like that, and he could he could get a reputation. Um, but you acted out the curse, and when you did, you, you were bound to it. So so Ab- Ab- Abram he knew what to do when God said go get these animals. He knew what to do. He knew this was a covenant ratification ceremony. This was well known. But in truth, he didn't have a clue what was about to happen. He knew, the, he knew the, the concept, he knew the tradition, he knew, the, he, he knew that, but he, no one on earth could have figured out what was about to go down right here. Here's what happened, verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Lights out for Abram, and this overwhelming, terrifying darkness comes upon him. I mean, the terminology is similar to remember with Adam in the Garden of Eden and God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam and he took a rib out of his side and formed uh, the woman from that rib. And th- there, what is God? God's providing for Adam without Adam's help. 
And there's something similar happening here. So in this state, the Lord spoke to him. Verse 13, then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. So he's going to go on to tell of judgments that he's going to bring upon the people of Egypt that we'll, we know, but, but Abram's going to live into an old age and he's going to be buried in peace. And so, so God tells him these things, but he, he still hasn't answered this question from verse 8. How can I know? How can I know? That's what he does though in verse 17. Verse 17, when the sun has gone down, when the head gone down, and it was dark, behold. You see that word again and again through this text. Is, behold. See. Get this. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. Now, this, this smoking fire pot, flaming torch, I realize if you're using a different translation than the ESV, that's fine. But you, you may have that worded differently. It's a very difficult, uh, nobody quite knows how to translate those words. But it's, it's not really critical that we, you get it just right. But, but here's what we know. Something, something appeared, and, and these are the same words. Smoke, blaze, same words used to describe the top of Mount Sinai when God came down uh, years later. These are the same words that are used to describe that pillar of God's presence in the wilderness, the, 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 the fiery cloud that guided them. And so here's what this is. This is the Shekinah glory, the, the manifest presence of God. And it's severe. It's the presence of God, and it's, and it's fierce. It's painful even to look at. And so it's, what, what astonishes Abram is not just the fact of the presence of God. It's what God did then. He passed between the pieces. He went down the aisle made by the pieces being separated. Now, what's so astonishing like that, about that? Well, there are, there are two problems when it comes for us trusting God. This is true of all times, from Adam to present, and will always be the case. We're asking first, how can I know about you, Lord? How can I know, how can I know that all the things you, you've promised to happen will come to pass? How can I know that, you, that you'll come through? And what God is saying to Abram when he comes to these pieces, when, he, when he's walking through this, this ceremony, he's saying, I've promised to bless you. I've promised to be your God and, 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 and to bring salvation to the world. And if I don't do what I say, may I be destroyed. He's guaranteeing that he's going to come through. So this is the first thing that God's speaking. This question, how can I know about you, God? That's amazing enough, but that's not all that's happening. It's not even the most remarkable thing that's happening here. Abraham could say, yes, Lord, that's wonderful that you pledged to keep your promise. I, 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 that's, that's, that's incredible, but honestly, I never thought you would break your promise. It, it's, it, the real problem is me. It's me. And that's the second struggle we have when it comes to trusting God. It's, it's Lord, how can I know about me? How can I trust me? Here you've made this wonderful promise and you're guaranteed that you'll come through. But I don't think that I can come through. I don't think that I can come through. I will let you down. I will fail you. You will eventually get tired of me. You will get fed up with me and you'll say, you know, how many times is he going to break his promise to me? 500 times. I mean, this is, this is wearying. That's it. And finally, you'll give up on me. You hold up your end, but I don't think I can hold up my end. I mean, isn't that the struggle where the rubber meets the road for us as believers? 
And here's what's so powerful about this. God walked through the pieces alone. Alone. God didn't walk through and then say, okay, I've done mine. Now, Abram, you walk through. It's your turn. No, this is amazing. Now, from history and archaeology, we know from, from this time that whenever a king would enter into a covenant relationship with someone who was of lower status than, than that king, one of two things would happen. Either the king and that servant would go through the pieces together and they would be basically saying to one another, if I don't do my part, may I be destroyed and you know, my body eaten by the birds and the beasts. Or the servant would go through and the king would not walk through. It was one of those two. But when the king, the king, God himself goes through by himself, this is what he's saying to Abram through this. I'm going I'm going through this for the both of us. That's powerful. It's one-sided. It's a one-sided covenant. God takes all of the responsibility on himself for fulfilling it. No matter what Abram does, no matter what he doesn't do from this point on, God will keep his promises. No matter what his descendants, no matter what Israel has done or has not done in history, God will keep his promise. There are, there are many who say, I know, and maybe this is, theologically, this is where you're at, but that God has abandoned Israel, her promises, his promises to her, and transferred those to the church. I don't think that's possible because God is not a covenant breaker. He makes his covenant alone, and no matter how much sin Abram commits, no matter how rebellious Abram's descendants become, God will not, he cannot break his covenant with them. He took it all upon himself. Now, brothers and sisters, this has everything to do with us today. What a powerful, powerful picture of the gospel. This is setting us up. This is what Paul, why Paul goes here so often, why the writer of Hebrews goes here. Salvation, it's not a cooperative effort. It's not God helps those who help themselves. We meet God you know, part way. He comes most of the way, but we, we, we do something. It's not a partnership. It is a one-sided covenant. God comes through and says, I will take upon myself the curse of the covenant for both of us. That's what he's saying. In this, Abraham, may I be cut off if I don't do my part of the bargain. And Abraham, may I be cut off if you don't do your part. That's what he's saying. Abram, I will bless you even if it means, and it will, that I have to die. That's powerful. Listen, centuries later, centuries later, darkness came down again. You find this recorded in Matthew and Mark chapter 15, 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Isaiah 53, uh, the suffering servant, that beautiful song pointing to the, the sufferings of Christ on our behalf. But this is something Abram had no clue about. He didn't understand this. He had no idea what it was going to cost God to, to come through on the promise that he made here. No clue. But Isaiah would later say about the coming Messiah, the suffering servant, that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Darkness came upon the Son of God on the cross. 
His immortality became mortality. His immutability became mutation. His, his, he was cut off. He was crushed. He was pierced for us. He did it. He did it. He accomplished it. He accomplished what we could never do on our own. That's, that's powerful. I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 6, please. Hebrews chapter 6. Turn and look there with me. And we'll conclude with this. Hebrews 6. This is an interesting passage and one we can't spend a lot of time in right now, but it's referring back to Genesis 15, this scene that we've been looking at. And it it refers back to the fact that God, God came to Abram, made this promise to him and it's this unilateral commitment this oath that God has has sworn God has done it himself and you see this language look in Hebrews chapter 6 verse 13 let's start reading there for when God made a promise to Abraham since he had no one greater by whom to swear he swore by himself saying surely I will bless you and multiply you and thus Abraham having patiently waited obtain the promise for people swear by something greater than themselves and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his promise he guaranteed it with an oath Genesis 15 so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Amen is right. This is what Abram had. He believed God. He, he had an anchor for his soul and the promise of God. Now, I'm not um, a Navy man, so... JK, others, you can help me out here, but I have had some experience with anchors, but it's rather limited, and it's not very dramatic or exciting. Um, But I I have been in boats when currents were somewhat strong and winds were stiff, and you're trying to just keep a boat from, you know, drifting into the shore while you're fishing or something like that. Nothing very exciting. But but this is the thing about anchors. The anchor does not just hang down into the water. Like you just, you just drop it down in the water. That, that, that the water is moving. There's a lot happening under the currents. You don't just put an anchor in the water. You have to get beneath the water to the, to the bed of the, of, the, of the body of water, to the rocks, to, the, to what's underneath, that, 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 those things that don't move around. You get it down on the rocks, and then the currents in the water and on the surface of the water and the winds, they don't matter so much. What the writer of Hebrews is helping us to see, and this is his point in, in, in writing this letter to these believers, what he's appealed to them is he's saying, what is your hope? What is the anchor of your soul? You, you have this, you have this, and, 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 but our tendency is to put it in whatever. It's to put it in the water. It's, a, it's, it's to, to, to look to our job, to look to our appearance, our looks, to look to our talents, to look to a friend. We say, oh, my, he'll never leave me. Yes, he will. No friend, no family member is enough. No, no, they won't always be there. No job will always be there. No talent will always be there. Looks will certainly not always be there. Whatever it is you put your anchor into, if it's a circumstance like that, it's like putting your anchor into the water. 
All of this stuff is water. Everything but the promise of God is water. It's ebbing, it's flowing. It, it, when it, it looks like it's flowing now, but it's going to ebb later. It's, that's the way it is. You have no hope unless you can put it beneath the water into something that's not water. If you anchor your life to circumstances, you will be constantly tossed around. The only way you've got hope is if you put your anchor into something that's not a circumstance, something that does not change, something that's heavier than heaven and earth, something that will outlast heaven and earth. Not just outlast your friends and your talents and your looks and your job. No, it will last out even the rocks at the bottom of the sea. The writer of Hebrews is making this connection. He's saying, ultimately, brothers and sisters, the anchor is Christ. And it's the salvation that he's provided and promised to us. That's what he goes on in verse 19. We, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. In other words, what he's saying, Jesus has already entered the presence of God. And, and he, that assures us of our entrance into heaven as well. That's an anchor for our souls. This is, this, is, this is our tendency, though. All of the problems of our life come back to what? We're not trusting God. We're not trusting Him. This is, this is it. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying, you have an anchor for your soul. Look to Him. Trust Him. It's not, it's not the, the, our hope is not based upon our performance. No, what is it? It's our union by faith with Christ alone. He's done it all. He's done it all. And the storms of life, and we face them. Losing a child, losing a job, just heartbreaks, difficulties, abuse, all of the things that we walk through. We have an anchor for our souls in Christ that gives steadiness to us. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that, uh, that you would... You would use your word today, Father, to, to, to direct our, our gaze to Christ. And to see that you, Jesus, have passed through the veil before us. You're in the presence of God. The promises that you've made regarding our salvation are certain. They are an anchor to our souls. And I pray that they would be sure and steady to, to your children today, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.